Welcome to this podcast titled Paediatric Appendicitis, where we are drawing on the content from the September 2021 print edition of the Clinical Communicate. I'm Dr. Nicola Cunningham, the Editor-in-Chief of this series. In this podcast episode, we hear about the very tragic stories of two children, a four-year-old and a 13-year-old who died from a ruptured appendix. We also reflect on a third story, that of a child who died more than 10 years earlier in strikingly similar circumstances, where there was a failure to make the correct diagnosis and to recognise just how unwell each child was becoming before it was too late. We hear an excellent commentary from Dr. Susan Adams, a paediatric surgeon who works at Sydney Children's Hospital, who explains why appendicitis may be missed and what we need to know and do to prevent these tragedies from occurring. In our print version, you will find Susan's key learning points and links to a few important assessment guidelines for children. These are the types of resources that should be at our fingertips every time we see a child with a tummy ache. Now, before we move on to the narrated editorial, I'd like to pause for a moment and talk about an experience I had as editor of this issue shortly after its release in September. I received an email from a work colleague that began with the words, The latest clinical communique was a tough read for me, Nicola. I was mortified. Our editorial team never forget that we're writing about the loss of loved ones and the pain experienced by all involved. We approach every case with respect, objectivity, and a deep sense of responsibility to do right by the people we're writing about and by our readers. But the stories will affect people, sometimes deeply. And here I was hearing from a colleague and I worried that somehow we hadn't done right by her. As I read on though, I realised that my colleague had her own harrowing story to tell and had found the strength and courage to reach out to me in the hope that her story might, like the addition, make people listen and make a difference to kids' lives. She told me that she'd feel better if more clinicians thought about this addition and the important messages in it so that no one else would have to go through what she had. So, with her permission, I'm going to read what she wrote to me because her words, a parent's words, are what matter most. She wrote, I believe our family had two very near misses with my son. Firstly, a ruptured appendix, he was eight years old. And secondly, three years later, an acute bowel obstruction from adhesions, which were complications of the first surgery. Both times involved miscommunication and dangerous delays in diagnosis. I could relate to every line from the cases, the non-typical presentation, the diagnosis of gastro, and with the bowel obstruction, the diagnosis of constipation, the atypical pain, the non-conclusive ultrasound where the appendix was not viewed, the unhelpful x-ray, and the lack of listening to parents' concerns. With the initial presentation, my son eventually, 40 hours after presenting to ED, had an emergency laparoscopy, which turned into a laparotomy overnight, where they discovered a ruptured appendix and peritonitis. He spent nine days in hospital on antibiotics. The acute bowel obstruction three years later was also horrible and problematic. The delay in diagnosis and laparoscopic division of adhesions, some 25 hours after he first presented to ED, meant part of his bowel started to die. Even with a nursing background, I found it very difficult to advocate strongly enough for my child. I tried very hard. It was extremely traumatic and I believe in both instances, it was partly down to luck that they didn't end in catastrophe. He will most likely have lifelong bowel issues. 
I'm very grateful to my colleague for telling me her story. It will stay with me always. Near misses are not uncommon. The preventable death of a child from ruptured appendix, rare as it might be, does happen. Please reflect on my colleague's experience and the contents of this podcast and remember to listen to parents' concerns and be aware of the dangers of assumptions and biases, especially with atypical presentations. Let's now listen to Luke Ward narrate the editorial. Clinical Communique Podcast, Episode 7, Paediatric Appendicitis. The contents of this podcast include an editorial, case number one, a paediatric perforation, case number two, hoofbeats aren't always horses, and expert commentary, children get tummy aches. Editorial from Dr. Nicola Cunningham. Welcome to episode seven of the Clinical Communique podcast, based on the September 2021 edition of the Clinical Communique. In this podcast episode, we focus on paediatric appendicitis, the most common cause of acute abdomen in children, in the sense that it is such a commonplace condition and tends to affect the young and healthy who appear to get better quickly and go home after antibiotics or surgery. Appendicitis is rarely thought of as a critical illness. Particularly in first world healthcare systems, it is not a diagnosis that clinicians expect to hear about as a cause of death in a patient, let alone a child. Yet, inflammation of the appendix can result in serious consequences. Morbidity can be high in children with appendicitis. Up to one third of cases result in perforation. Abscess formation, peritonitis, and post-operative complications do occur, and the younger the child, the greater the risk. Importantly, while the mortality rate for appendicitis in children is very low, it rises significantly in cases where the appendix has ruptured. Several independent factors, including age younger than five years, symptom duration longer than 24 hours, hyponatremia, and leukocytosis are all associated with an increased risk of death. The medical profession has understood most of what it knows about appendicitis for more than a century. The condition was first described in 1886 by Dr. Reginald Fitz, a medical scholar who was both a pathologist and an internist. He had painstakingly observed the deceased appendix in over 250 autopsies and pieced together the pathological and clinical sequence of an illness that had until that time been referred to as iliac passion and incorrectly attributed to inflammation of the cecum. Dr. Fitz named the condition appendicitis and announced his discovery at the initial meeting of the Association of American Physicians to an audience that included noted medical luminaries, Osler, Jacoby, Janeway, and Trudeau. From the very beginning, Dr. Fitz had advocated early operation for acute appendicitis and had raised concerns about complications arising from rupture of the appendix leading to generalized infection of the abdomen. 135 years later, and with the advent of antibiotic therapy and improved surgical techniques, history begs the question of why children are still succumbing to seemingly preventable complications in a condition that we have long since known how to treat. The answer lies in the challenges of differentiating between appendicitis and other surgical and medical causes of abdominal pain in children. 
forming an assumption that a child with vomiting and diarrhea has gastroenteritis might appear reasonable, but the apparent logic of this approach is rendered invalid if not paired with an alertness to respond to a subsequently unexpected clinical cause. Appendicitis is primarily a clinical diagnosis, aided by a synthesis of laboratory and radiological findings. The younger the child, the more difficult the diagnosis and the higher the rate of appendix rupture. Up to 10% of children with appendicitis are missed on initial clinical assessment. There also remain logistical and radiotoxic reasons as to why every paediatric abdominal pain cannot or should not result in a CT scan with plain X-ray and ultrasound options unreliable due to their potential for generating false negative results. The diagnostic difficulties are perhaps best evidenced by the more than 20 eponymous signs that have been described over many decades in attempts to assist the accurate identification of this condition. In this podcast, we describe three cases of paediatric appendicitis where delays in diagnosis and treatment tragically resulted in death. Although the cases occurred almost 10 years apart, there were similar lessons to be learned in each, demonstrating that even when there is ready access to emergency care and surgical treatment, patients are still dying. The lawyer for the family in one of these cases was quoted as saying at the time that death from appendicitis is a third world outcome and should not occur. It remains a condition where despite 21st century medicine, the diagnosis continues to elude clinicians. The expert commentary in this podcast is by Dr. Susan Adams, a paediatric surgeon who has written an excellent overview of the topic. Dr. Adams offers a pragmatic and insightful approach to the assessment of children with abdominal pain. She presents key points that help to raise awareness of the most reliable red flags in diagnosing appendicitis. Dr. Fitz first drew attention to the issue of acute appendicitis and its potential to result in serious morbidity and mortality. Over a hundred years later, it is imperative that lessons are learned from cases like the ones described in this podcast so that the child with acute appendicitis is not missed again. Let's now listen to the case from the Northern Territory. Case number one, a paediatric perforation. Case Pracy author, Miss Melanie Gordon, quality manager. Clinical summary. DC was a four-year-old Aboriginal boy who lived with his mother and younger sister. DC was a healthy child whose only medical history was a possible diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder for which he was awaiting formal multidisciplinary assessments. He was happily playing with his sister one afternoon when he suddenly started to vomit. His mother believed he had a virus and administered paracetamol. DC vomited approximately six times throughout the night. The following day, his mother noticed the vomiting had become more frequent, so she took him to a large public hospital emergency department, arriving at 1.32pm. DC's mother informed the ED staff that he had been unwell since the previous afternoon. She explained that he was autistic and was unable to communicate where he had pain. The emergency registrar who examined DC noted that it was a difficult assessment as DC was crying and distressed, which may have been a result of his likely autism, an expression of pain, or simply a reluctance to be examined. 
He confirmed that DC was febrile at 38 degrees Celsius and his abdomen felt rigid. All DC's other physiological observations were normal. Following his examination, the emergency registrar considered several differential diagnoses, including gastroenteritis, urinary tract infection, acute abdomen, query appendicitis, mesenteric adenitis, that is, inflammation of the lymph nodes of the abdomen, or comorbidities such as a viral infection with also constipation. He requested a review by the pediatric registrar. DC was reviewed at 5.40pm by the paediatric registrar who noted the concerns about difficulties communicating with DC. The paediatric registrar found, however, that although one expects resistance when assessing a child with autism, DC allowed her to examine him and this worried her. DC appeared to be making grunting respirations and was guarding his abdomen. He had a temperature of 37.5 degrees Celsius His respiratory rate was 30 breaths per minute, where the normal range is 17 to 30 breaths per minute, and his heart rate was 170 beats per minute, where the normal range is 80 to 150 beats per minute. The paediatric registrar attributed DC's elevated heart rate to discomfort and dry retching. She also noted that DC appeared well perfused, but his abdomen was rigid with guarding and tenderness in the right iliac fossa. She ordered blood tests and an abdominal x-ray and made a referral to the surgical team to review DC for the possible diagnosis of appendicitis. DC was examined by a general surgeon who observed that he was not in pain when he was lying flat and his legs were straightened and his abdomen was soft and appeared uncomfortable only when pushed deeply with no greater reaction on the right compared with the left side. The surgeon discussed his findings with DC's parents and it was agreed that DC had improved somewhat. The only pain relief that had been administered was paracetamol, so the surgeon was not worried about medication potentially concealing his symptoms. Additionally, DC's temperature and heart rate had normalised, and the blood test results that were available and the abdominal X-ray were unremarkable. The surgeon explained to DC's parents that although the diagnosis might be appendicitis, there was no need for an urgent operation. The paediatric registrar was initially worried about the outcome of the surgical assessment as she felt that DC was more unwell than the surgeon had appreciated. However, when she returned to review DC at 8pm, she saw that he did look better from when she last examined him. She noted that all the blood test results had returned and DC had a lymphopenia, increasing the likelihood of a viral cause. The test for C-reactive protein was still unavailable at this point. DC was admitted to the ward for observation with a plan for surgical review the following morning. Intravenous fluids were to be administered overnight and DC was to continue fasting. At 1.30am, the night paediatric registrar was contacted by the ward nurses as DC had spiked a temperature of 39.4 degrees Celsius. That registrar reviewed DC at 1.45am and noted that his respiratory rate was 52 breaths per minute, his pulse was 103 beats per minute and his oxygen saturation levels were 98% on room air. He did not have audible grunting and he had a soft abdomen with no evidence of guarding or rigidity. The night paediatric registrar further observed at 3am 
that Daisy was asleep and his temperature was 37.6 degrees Celsius, his respiratory rate 50 breaths per minute, pulse 100 beats per minute, and his oxygen saturation levels were 98% on room air. A code blue call was initiated at 3.53am when DC was found unresponsive and not breathing. Cardiopulmonary resuscitation was commenced almost immediately and continued for approximately 35 minutes, but DC could not be resuscitated and was declared deceased at 4.28am. Pathology A post-mortem examination was conducted that found DC had acute vermiform appendicitis which had ruptured, leading to acute peritonitis caused by faecal contamination. Investigation DC's death was reported to the coroner as it was an unexpected death. The coroner expressed serious concerns that a person could die from appendicitis in this day and age and proceeded to hold an inquest to determine whether there had been a failure by staff to properly diagnose and treat DC's condition. The coroner heard expert evidence from two specialists, a paediatrician with experience in autism and developmental medicine, Dr. M, and a general paediatric surgeon, Dr. C. Dr. M was of the opinion that all the staff who interacted with DC had carefully considered his likely autism and had taken the related communication issues into consideration in their clinical assessment to determine whether he had appendicitis. Dr. M highlighted that not all children with autism have an increased threshold to pain. Furthermore, Dr. M was of the belief that the difficulty with making the diagnosis of appendicitis is attributable to his young age and unusual presentation and is not related to his autism. Dr. C gave evidence that in his experience, diagnosing appendicitis in preschool-aged children is challenging as it is uncommon and there is no specific test for the condition. He noted that the use of imaging with ultrasound in early appendicitis was an unreliable investigation with the risk of false negative results. DC highlighted the need to take caution when children are involved, rather than proceeding immediately to an operation as this carries its own risks. Dr. C stated that most of the children he had seen who had appendicitis at such a young age usually had signs of perforation when they were operated on. Dr. C also noted that in the young, appendicitis can progress faster with early perforation and without localization, adding to the difficulty of diagnosis before perforation and peritonitis develops. Coroner's findings. The coroner felt that the action taken by the hospital staff was appropriate and reasonable and further stated that appendicitis is a very difficult diagnosis to make indeed, despite the fact that it is a well-known illness and that this is not assisted by the fact that there are no particular tests or the like that can conclusively identify that a patient is suffering from appendicitis. The coroner considered the issue of whether an ultrasound should have been requested in the first instance by the treating doctors, but on hearing the evidence from the experts, felt it reasonable that the surgical involvement was prioritised over an investigation. For the same reasons, the coroner declined the family's request that a recommendation be made to use ultrasounds in relation to assessing children up to six years of age suspected of having appendicitis. The coroner concluded by acknowledging that all staff involved in DC's care had been deeply affected by his death 
and had taken their own steps in the hope of preventing a similar outcome in the future. The paediatric registrar expressed to the coroner the impact DC's death had on her and her hope that DC's family could find peace in the future. The surgeon had taken the unusual action of attending the autopsy to try and understand what had occurred and what he could have done differently. The hospital had also undertaken its own incident review and had met with DC's family as part of its review process in order to identify and address any matters that could be improved upon. Author's comments. Studies have shown that although acute appendicitis is the most common cause of emergency abdominal surgery in children, the diagnosis is not always straightforward. Delays in diagnosis may cause significant problems, while overdiagnosis can result in unnecessary surgical intervention. In children, the evolution of the disease process in acute appendicitis can mean that the classical picture is often absent. It is therefore recommended that early and repeated surgical consultation is obtained every time the diagnosis is suspected, particularly when the child has vague abdominal complaints. Let's now listen to the case from New South Wales. Case number two. Case title, Hoofbeats Aren't Always Horses, from Case Precy author, Dr Raymond Guman general practitioner and forensic physician. Clinical summary. LR was a healthy 13-year-old boy with no significant medical history who resided in a town approximately 60 kilometres from a major regional city. He stayed home from school for two days, initially complaining of a sore tummy and later developed vomiting and a loss of appetite. On the third day of illness, he had two episodes of diarrhoea, He attended his GP, Dr. B, that afternoon. The medical records from that first consultation noted a history of vomiting and lethargy, no abdominal pain, and cases of vomiting and diarrhoea at Alar's school. Examination findings included a soft abdomen with no tenderness, guarding, or rigidity. No vital signs were documented. A diagnosis of viral gastroenteritis was made. Alar was advised to keep hydrated and return to see Dr. B if he developed new or worsening symptoms. Although Alar kept up his fluid intake, he remained unwell the following day with ongoing vomiting and diarrhea. Alar's mother called the clinic and spoke to a receptionist about Alar's symptoms, which were conveyed to Dr. B by email. Dr. B replied that management should continue as discussed for viral diarrhea. On day five of his illness, Allah asked his mother for pull-up nappies due to his persistent diarrhea. His older sister took him to his GP appointment. Allah had difficulty standing and required his sister's assistance to get dressed and to walk. On their drive to the clinic, he asked her to slow down over speed bumps. These symptoms were not communicated to Dr. B, who saw Allah while he was on the examination bed in the treatment room, where a receptionist had suggested he wait. The medical records from the second consultation contained a history and examination almost identical to the first, except that a temperature reading of 37.2 degrees Celsius had been recorded. Allah's symptoms waxed and waned over the next two days. On day eight, 
Ella vomited in the morning and told his mother that he felt like something had popped in his tummy. Ella's mother called the clinic and told the receptionist that Ella's vomiting had recurred and looked like Coca-Cola syrup. An afternoon appointment was booked. Meanwhile, Ella continued to vomit and looked pale and weak. At around 1pm, Ella's mother called triple zero and requested an ambulance. Soon after, Ella fell over, made some strange sounds and stopped breathing. Paramedics arrived and transported Alar to the nearest community hospital. In the emergency department, Alar was intubated and received CPR, while an urgent ambulance transfer with police escort was arranged to convey him to the nearest tertiary referral hospital. Alar did not survive the transfer, and the resuscitation attempt was ceased prior to arrival at the receiving hospital. Pathology an autopsy conducted the day following Allah's death found that he had suffered from a ruptured gangrenous acute appendicitis and acute suppurative peritonitis. The appendix was described as being retrocecal. Investigation. While the inquest was not mandatory, it was held to address concerns regarding the circumstances of Allah's death. The coroner sought to address the date from which Allah was likely suffering from appendicitis the typical features of classic appendicitis and retrocecal appendicitis and whether either is difficult to diagnose, whether the clinical findings from the assessments performed by the GP were in keeping with a differential diagnosis of appendicitis and or retrocecal appendicitis. In case of these differential diagnoses, the management options available to the treating GP, whether the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners provides adequate guidance for the diagnosis and management of appendicitis and the differences in the history of Allah's presenting symptoms according to his family and according to Dr. B. Six expert witnesses, a forensic pathologist, a gastrointestinal surgeon, a paediatric surgeon and three GPs provided written and oral evidence to the inquest. There were several disputes in the account of events provided by Dr. B and Allah's family of what occurred during the consultations. Most pertinent of these was Allah's report of abdominal pain, which Allah's mother and sister maintained was conveyed to Dr. B at both consultations, despite contemporaneous medical records to the contrary. The forensic pathologist and gastrointestinal surgeon agreed that it was unlikely Allah suffered from gastroenteritis in the week prior to his death. However, the GPs agreed that in the majority of cases where adolescents present with vomiting and diarrhea, the correct diagnosis is gastroenteritis, and Dr. B's diagnosis and management of Allah at the first consultation was reasonable. All the clinicians agreed that appendicitis can be difficult to diagnose. Both surgeons recognised that Allah's presentation was atypical and acknowledged that retrocecal appendicitis does not have the characteristic signs and symptoms of classic appendicitis. One of the GPs felt that given the multiple presentations and phone calls, Allah should have been referred by Dr. B to an ED. Given Allah's failure to improve, there was concern that Dr. B did not consider or eliminate through further investigations other diagnostic alternatives. These views were not shared by the other two experts who were GPs. 
The coroner acknowledged that the difference of opinions between the experts reflected the challenges of diagnostic medicine and agreed that the devil is in the detail. Coroner's findings. The coroner found that Allard died as a result of misdiagnosis of gastroenteritis and the consequent failure to receive appropriate management for appendicitis. The coroner considered recommendations proposed by Allard's family, including the importance of documenting vital signs for patients. The coroner noted, however, that various provisions in existing health practitioner regulation laws cover clinical documentation standards and adequate record keeping, and therefore did not make any formal recommendations. Authors comment, This case bears a striking resemblance to another tragic New South Wales case of JB, an eight-year-old boy who died in 2009 of septicemia secondary to a perforated appendix. JB was misdiagnosed by the first GP who reviewed him, but correctly diagnosed as having appendicitis with likely perforation by a second GP, who saw him a few days later and urgently referred him to a hospital by ambulance. Staff at that hospital did not note the GP's referral letter or the ambulance record, and instead considered that JB had a bowel obstruction for which he would need to be transferred to a tertiary paediatric hospital for surgery. What followed was a series of significant delays and failures by staff at both hospitals to recognise JB's critical condition despite his mother's urgings. JB eventually underwent surgery but deteriorated post-operatively and died during a subsequent emergency laparotomy. These cases emphasise the importance for clinicians in developing a sound list of differential diagnoses, potential causes for the patient's signs and symptoms from each clinical presentation. While we know there's wisdom in the approach that common conditions occur commonly, differentials prompt us to consider other possible causes for a patient's presentation. It is particularly crucial to revisit the potential diagnoses when we review those patients who fail to improve, not just those whose conditions worsen. Let's now listen to the expert commentary by Dr. Susan Adams. Expert commentary, children get tummy aches from Dr. Susan Adams, paediatric surgeon at Sydney Children's Hospital and conjoint senior lecturer in the School of Women's and Children's Health at the University of New South Wales. This topic is important to explore as appendicitis is the commonest paediatric surgical emergency with a lifetime risk of 7 to 8%. The peak incidence is in the second decade, but it may occur at any age, including in preschoolers. Despite advances in diagnostic modalities and surgical approaches, appendicitis in children may be missed, leading to unrecognised sepsis. And sadly, because of this, fatalities still occur. The cases presented in this episode illustrate the challenges of identifying the illness and the consequences of a delay in diagnosis. The fact is, children get tummy aches, often. Most are self-limiting and in the vast majority of cases, rest, fluids, some paracetamol and a bit of tender loving care will settle things down, usually well within 24 hours. When the pain doesn't settle, there's a whole list of possible causes, including urinary tract infection, other intra-abdominal surgical emergencies, mesenteric adenitis, gastroenteritis, functional causes and migraine, extra abdominal causes such as pneumonia, and of course, constipation. 
in some ways, the more differential diagnoses you're aware of, the harder the diagnosis of appendicitis can be to make. So the diagnosis of appendicitis in children, particularly the very young, is difficult. The challenge for clinicians, from general practitioners to emergency personnel, nurses to junior doctors, paediatricians to surgeons, is to pick the child with a surgical cause and to address the problem in a timely manner. It can help to have a mental picture of A, the pathology of appendicitis, and B, behaviour of the illness at different ages. Pathologically, there are thought to be two forms of appendicitis, obstructive and non-obstructive. Non-obstructive appendicitis may present with vague central abdominal pain, anorexia and nausea, associated with a low-grade fever. It does eventually localise to the right iliac fossa, but rarely progresses to rupture. There is plenty of time to make the diagnosis, and the outcome after appendicectomy is usually fine. Obstructive appendicitis is quite different. The classic presentation is much more florid and generally exhibits a much tighter timeline. The appendix is blocked by a faecalith or a kink. This luminal obstruction of the appendix causes sudden onset of pain, referred to the periumbilical region and reflex vomiting. As the appendix becomes swollen and inflamed through its wall, the local parietal peritoneum also becomes inflamed and the pain localises to wherever the appendix is situated, which may or may not be the right iliac fossa. At this stage, the vomiting often settles and the pain is more constant. Left to progress, the appendix may then rupture, either due to intraluminal pressure or due to necrotizing infection of the wall. Initially, rupture may be associated with transient resolution of the pain. Two things may then happen. The omentum and the local intestine may stick to the appendix, walling off the rupture to a contained phlegmon or abscess with localised pain, rising fever, tenderness and guarding, or no such reaction occurs and the child develops generalised peritonitis with rising fever, generalised pain and tenderness. If pus or an abscess accumulates in the pelvis, irritation of the rectum can cause tenesmus and diarrhoea. Untreated, ileus or mechanical bowel obstruction ensues, resulting in bilious vomiting. And all the while, sepsis worsens. The severity of the sepsis is related to an interplay of the duration of untreated infection, the virulence of the pathogenic bacteria, and the host-pathogen interaction. In retrospect, it is likely the cases raised had obstructive appendicitis that perforated, resulting in nonspecific signs and unrecognized sepsis. This is suggested by the pain and degree of vomiting in the early part of the illness. In the case of DC, the sepsis progressed rapidly. In the case of LR, irrevocable shock developed after a week. In JB's case, it wasn't until the child was ill for a week, presented to hospital, was transferred to another hospital and then operated upon, that septic shock became irreversible. Age is the second important factor. Diagnosing appendicitis can be extremely challenging, especially in the very young, and we don't always get the classic textbook story. Judicious clinical assessment remains the cornerstone of diagnosis and, as in the case across all paediatric medicine, parent or carer observations and concerns about their child are key in this. Additionally, as was illustrated in the cases presented, frequent reassessment regarding clinical progress is essential. 
Diagnosis may be aided by blood tests and imaging. However, these need to be directed by the history and physical findings. Preschool children can rarely give a clear story, so it is very important to pay attention to parent or carer observations regarding pain throughout the course of the illness. In the vast majority of cases at this age, the appendix is ruptured at presentation. Because of the immaturity of the intra-abdominal defences, widespread peritonitis, rather than a walled-off infection, is the usual outcome of perforation. For these reasons, it is rare to elicit a history of shifting pain. Vomiting is also a non-specific feature, although relentless vomiting that settles before later recurring may be a sign of obstructive appendicitis that has progressed to rupture. Older children may not volunteer their symptoms, but taking time to engage with them and making direct inquiries can help elicit their symptoms. They may have abdominal pain on passing urine due to the local peritoneal inflammation. Diarrhea is generally not a big feature of appendicitis in the early stages, although may occur in the presence of a pelvic abscess or pus after the appendix has ruptured. Bilious vomiting is always a concern for a surgical cause. On examination, it is important not to skip over observations of the vital signs. Although fever is expected in advanced appendicitis, a very sick child may not have a high temperature or may be caught afebrile between swinging fevers. Either way, they are likely to be relatively tachypneic if sepsis is developing, reflecting the associated metabolic acidosis. Initially, this may be the only sign of significant illness. Tachycardia as a feature of sepsis and hypovolemia is important, but can be difficult to interpret in children in the presence of pain and possible fear in the strange setting of a hospital. Focusing on the abdomen, subtle clues to the presence of peritoneal irritation, whether localised or generalised, can be gained from just watching the child. Beware of the older child who says it hurts to move, has pain on hopping, or can't shift in the bed without discomfort, or the younger child lying quiet and still, possibly with their knees bent up or lying on their right side. A younger child with a ruptured appendix who is a more diaphragmatic breather will have very little abdominal excursion with respiration. For this reason, they may grunt on exhalation. A distended abdomen may indicate ileus or obstruction. Checking with the parent or carer about the usual tummy shape can be helpful. Once examining the child, specific techniques to gain their confidence are needed, although a very ill toddler may not react in the usual defiant way, instead allowing a stranger to examine them. Despite what the textbooks say, the maximal tenderness may not always be in the right iliac fossa. In the case of a retrocecal appendix, the only tenderness may be in the loin. Important to consider, as up to 60% of appendixes are in this position. A child with a pelvic appendix may have a suprapubic tenderness or no tenderness at all. After rupture, classic board-like guarding is rare in small children. Rather, the abdomen is full and doughy feeling and the child may show signs of discomfort in their facial expression while still allowing deep palpation. Fear may limit their reaction. In the older child, localising signs may be clearer, although not so once the appendix has ruptured. Other causes for the presentation sought on clinical examination include a chest examination for pneumonia. 
Be wary of diagnosing gastroenteritis in the absence of early diarrhea and in the presence of abdominal pain on moving, urinating, and signs of tenderness, and of diagnosing constipation before other causes have been categorically excluded. In a child with an undifferentiated but concerning illness, tests may help. The urine should be checked. There may be red cells and white cells due to bladder wall inflammation. A full blood count may show a raised white cell count, particularly raised neutrophils, and the CRP may indicate bacterial infection. However, leukopenia can be a sign of more severe sepsis. A venous gas with lactate will show the degree of acidosis. Distension and or bilious vomiting should prompt an abdominal x-ray. With any abdominal signs, an ultrasound is useful. Rarely, cross-sectional imaging, such as with CT scan or MRI, is warranted to detect collections that may be best drained prior to definitive surgery. Although appendicitis as a cause for the child's illness may not be certain, many of the red flags for sepsis will be present in cases of rupture. Thus, guidelines for sepsis can be followed to ensure early resuscitation efforts are optimised while a cause is elucidated. This includes airway and breathing support as required and fluid resuscitation along with appropriate antibiotics. The empirically recommended antibiotics in most sepsis guidelines cover intra-abdominal sources. The key learning points from this commentary are 1. It is important to look for signs of sepsis with early resuscitation and consideration of antibiotics. This needs to take into account a combination of parental and clinical concern, including a child whose observations are not between the flags after simple measures. 2. Bowel obstruction or ileus in the presence of abdominal signs and markers of infection in a child without previous surgery is very likely to be due to a missed appendicitis, although other surgical causes may be found. And 3. Beware of the subtlety of appendicitis in the very young. Thanks for tuning into this podcast episode. If you'd like to read more about the medical luminaries mentioned in the editorial, go to our print edition of the September Clinical Communique 2021 for a fascinating little summary about their remarkable achievements in medicine at a time when the concepts of health and the human body were so much more of a mystery than what we understand today. Remember the online print versions are available at our website at www.thecommunicase.com, which also include hyperlinks and a list of resources and any references that the experts recommend. I'm Nicola Cunningham. Thanks for listening.